Coming to you from the Barrier Island Center on Virginia's eastern shore, this is Sharing the Mic with David Phillips. In each episode, we try to give you a different perspective of life on the eastern shore, whether it's about an occupation or simply stories of what people who have lived here have done in their careers. If you like what you hear, share it with your friends. Sharing the Mic is a monthly podcast with each new episode appearing the first of each month. My guest is Curtis Badger, who grew up on Virginia's eastern shore, majored in English at Salisbury State University, and spent four years in the U.S. Air Force, working as a photojournalist. When his enlistment was completed, he returned to the eastern shore and began a career photographing and writing about his native coast. His books include Salt Tide, Cycles and Currents of Life Along the Coast, Bellevue Farms, Exploring Virginia's Coastal Countryside, A Natural History of Quiet Waters, The Wild Coast, and Exploring Delmarva. One of his more recent books is A Culinary History of Delmarva. He has won numerous awards for his writing and photography. Curtis Badger, welcome to Sharing the Mic. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. If you would, please describe your life growing up on the eastern shore during the 1950s and 60s. Well, I have always considered the landscape as part of my family. And um, our family came here probably in the late 1600s from England. And we've been here ever since. My great-great-grandfather had a farm at Red Bank Landing and also had a shipping business that he operated out of there. And I realized the other day that when I go out on the seaside and go clamming, I'm probably catching the progeny of the the same clams that my great-great-grandfather caught in the same place all those years ago. And when I bring them home and make clam chatter, I'm probably doing it exactly the same way that they did it back then. So um, I've always considered the the land to be part of my family and the, the landscape is, is as part of us. And, I, you know, if, if you've lived here for that many generations, I don't think you can escape having that feeling. So I grew up uh, going out to the Barrier Islands. My father was a fisherman and a hunter, so I fished and, and hunted and spent a lot of time mainly on Cedar Island, Matompkin Island. My father liked to go flounder fishing. So I'd go out there with him and he'd fish for flounder and he'd put me off on the beach with a bottle of water and a towel and I'd spend Saturday afternoon out there on the on the beach exploring. Most of the time I was the only one on the beach. Now and then somebody else would come along, but uh, for the most part I had the place to myself. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I think this was a very important part of my upbringing. It really made an impression on me Unknowingly, uh, it, it it did not register at the time. I think later on, I grew up, went to college, went in the Air Force, and uh, one day in the early 1970s, I got the Eastern Shore News in the mail. I was stationed in Alaska at this time, and the headline in the newspaper read, New York developer buys barrier islands and plans major development, and this was Smith, Myrtle, and Shipshole. When I read that, I just sort of had a shiver down my spine, and it brought um, a little bit of reality into some of the fantasies that I had uh, out there on the islands. That um, I, you know, growing up 
on a rural in the rural area on the coast. I figure there are a lot of rural areas on the coast, and there was nothing special about what I was doing and, and the way I was being, uh, the, the way I was brought up. The reality of this though was a shock, and I realized then, the New York Times. Uh, a few weeks after that came out with a big front page article saying that the little of the wild, the wilderness that remains on the East Coast is probably going to be gone in the next 10 years. Yeah, so this um, was really something that, that deeply bothered me. And all of a sudden, the life that I was living when I was growing up suddenly had a new meaning and it became very valuable. And I realized that probably my children would never have this experience if indeed uh, this development took place. Right. And at about the, the same time, uh, the Nature Conservancy started buying land in, in the general area. That was kind of a glimmer of hope. And to me, that was sort of like the, the cavalry, cavalry riding in just as, as the bad guys were holding up the stage. I think several things took place. For one thing, the state and the federal government were passing uh, wetlands legislation. I think another thing, the, the developers from New York were not aware of, of the landscape that they were buying. I mean, this, this was a sandy barrier island on the coast. They were planning on uh, accommodations for 50,000 people, and the population of Northampton was only 15,000. I think they realized between legislation to protect wetlands and the, the reality of developing a barrier island system like that was just not going to work. So uh, fortunately, the uh, Nature Conservancy was able to buy the land. The development was off. Yeah. Let's back up just a little bit. What about your upbringing compelled you to major in English? Was there a particular high school teacher or what's that all about? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, that's a good question. I've had a lot of good teachers. Um, Art Fisher in high school was my English teacher and history teacher. And Art had just gotten his master's degree from William and Mary, and he was just gung-ho, loved to teach, loved the uh, English language. And I've really got an appreciation from, for writing from Art. And uh, so he was one of the, the major ones. And uh, Winnie Belote, I remember, I think she was my eighth grade teacher. And she was a grammarian, and we diagrammed sentences. I don't know if did you diagram sentences? Absolutely. And my mother was a <laughs> an English teacher at a business really? college, and I, I, I got loved, that pounded into me. I, I love to diagram sentences. In fact, sometimes I still do it mentally. You know, if I'm writing yeah. a, a sentence, and you know, it was a subject predicate and direct object, and anyway, that and but you you know I think the, the teacher that. I think most influenced me, is it this going to sound a little strange, was the first and second grade teacher I had at only uh, elementary school. Uh, her name was Liza Below, Miss Liza, everyone call her. And Miss Liza had a habit of, on a fairly regular basis, she would exhaust her lesson plan <laughs> before the final bell rang. So we'd all be sitting there, tired, wanted to go home, 10 minutes before the bell time, and Miss Liza would turn to the class and she'd say, would anyone like to tell a story? And my little hand would pop right up and, yeah, I'll tell a story. So I get up and um, I tell a story and <laughs> I have no idea what I came up with, you know, have no clue. But anyway, I just would love to get up and tell a story. And uh, I think it started there. And I think it was something that was it probably in my DNA. 
And I think that's the role that teachers play. It's not teaching you facts, but to finding what gift do you have and how to develop it. Right. And uh, so, so that I think goes back to Miss Liza Belote and and telling stories. And I'd always love to tell stories. I I'd watch a, an episode of Dragnet with my parents on TV, and the next day I'd write my own Dragnet script, <laughs> and, wow. and my father would type it up for me. So uh, I think um, loving to tell stories it manifested itself in two ways. You know, for one thing, writing. I like to write. I had a, a little bit of a an idea that I might be good at it. So I, I worked at it. And then the other was photography. And I, I've always loved photography. And I was just thinking, you know, I'm doing the same thing. I'm just using two different mediums. Exactly. I'm telling a story. It's uh, either I'm doing it verbally one way or I'm doing it visually in, a, in another way. What was your first camera? I still have it. It's a twin lens reflex camera. <laughs> I have a picture of me with my parents standing in our yard. I must have been about eight or 10 years old, I guess. And the camera is draped around my neck. You know, it's hanging down to my knee, but it's, you know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was my first camera. I still have it. Wow. After college, you enlisted in the Air Force. I did. Yeah. Why the Air Force? Because I was about to be drafted and I didn't want to go to Vietnam, <laughs> frankly. Um, but I, I wanted to be a photographer, and I had no idea, no clue, how I could make a living writing and taking pictures. You know, it just never occurred to me that I could do that. So I went to see the recruiter in Salisbury, the Air Force recruiter, and um, I told him that I'm interested in photography. I want to be a photographer in the Air Force. And he said, well, we do have photographers, but uh, in order to be a photographer in the Air Force, you have to go through photography school. And photography school right now is full, mm. and so we can't let you in. So I said, well, okay, I'll go talk with the Navy and see what they have to say. So the next day, the Air Force recruiter called me, and he said, you know, I've, I've got a deal for you. When you, you become a photographer in the Air Force, you have to go through the school, and then you have to pass an exam, and then you become a photographer. If you can come up here and take that exam, and if you can pass it, we'll take you in the Air Force as a photographer. So I went to Salisbury the next day. I took the exam and I passed it and signed the papers. Mm. And so I went through a very basic, <laughs> basic training. You know, they, they told me who to salute and who not to salute, how to hang your clothes in the closet. They were very big on dental hygiene. So, you know, that was a weekly thing. And um, so after a, a very brief duration, I became a photographer in the Air Force. And um, it was great. I grew up on the Eastern Shore, pretty sheltered uh, existence, didn't travel a whole lot. In the Air Force, I started at, in Texas and from there to Kansas, from Kansas to Brasilia, back to Kansas, Washington State, and Alaska. And then finally, wow. after three and a half years, it was a lot of travel. And then that, that didn't include all the you know, week-long trips, trips or some that sort of thing. So finally... I got out after three and a half years when I was in Alaska and I had bought a little red Toyota when I was up there and the Air Force shipped the car back to Seattle for me and I took a flight down, got in the red Toyota and drove home. Uh, George McMath had written me a letter saying, 
I know you're getting out of the Air Force soon. Would you like to work for the newspaper? So I immediately called him and says, yeah, I'll be there as soon as my little red Toyota can get me there. So I came back and worked for the newspaper. Uh, I worked worked for the newspaper for a pretty good while and really enjoyed it. Made some very good friends. People are, are lifelong friends from sure. the newspaper business. But And that was the Eastern Shore News? Eastern Shore News, okay. yeah. My father, I think, was the first in our family to actually have a job. And I think the DNA in our family was that they farmed, they had a shipping business, they all worked for themselves. I think my my father grew up on a farm, his grandparents were farmers, his parents were, and I think he probably had one too many days of having to get up before dawn and going out and, and milking the cows. So my father wanted a job where he could wear a tie to work. So he went to business school, uh, got a degree in, a, in accounting, and moved back to the Eastern Shore. He worked for a while for the Bank of Northampton, and then he went to work for the Eastern Shore Virginia Produce Exchange. So he was still in farming in a way, so he could wear his tie to, to work. In fact, he wore a tie all the time. I'd see him out in the, in the yard working in his garden or mowing grass, and he'd be wearing a tie. Um, so I think he was the first in our family to, to actually have a job. And I think my DNA was more that of my great grandparents. I wanted to work for myself. Mm -hmm. So I began freelance writing and, um, and photography left, left the newspaper. I still have uh, very good friends at the newspaper and, you know, Bill Sterling and I were there at the same time and mm -hmm. Bill and I have been lifelong friends and we'll fish together and hunt together and that kind of thing. But I've really enjoyed having a freelance career. And that's fact, great. I, the first magazine I wrote for was Virginia Wildlife, and um, I'm doing a story in the January-February issue of 2023 on herons, and that will be my 50th year of writing for Virginia Wildlife. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Did the Air Force experience inform any of your work as a naturalist photographer and writer? Well, I think for one thing, it broadened my my horizons. You know, I grew up in a um, segregated environment, basically. And when I went in the Air Force, all, all of those barriers were down, at least physically down. Uh, there were still, obviously, uh, barriers that, that you couldn't see. Mm -hmm. um, but um, my first roommate uh, was a, a black guy about my age. And uh, I think he was a little sensitive about the issue, and I was too. And so we kind of pussyfooted around a little bit for the first few days. But after we got to know each other, you know, he was from Georgia. He lived in a rural area, like sports, like the same kind of foods I did. I, li I lived in a rural area, had a, a large extended family. Yeah. And I realized, you know, we have more in common with each other than we do. Differences. Fact, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so we became good friends. And uh, Pretty soon, he was no longer my black roommate. He was just my friend, my roommate. Mm -hmm. And um, when you're in the military, you don't stay in one place very long. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure whatever would happen to him. But one thing interesting did happen uh, shortly before we went our separate ways. I was going to the post office one day, and he, he handed me some letters. He said, would you mind mailing these for me? I said, no, I'd be glad to. And I looked at the one on top. It was addressed to someone in Melfa, Virginia. Hmm. And uh, the, you know, I grew up two miles from Alpha, Virginia, and sure. if it were not for the divide, the racial divide, I would probably know the person that that letter was addressed to. And uh, so, I think that's one of the things that the Air Force one of the, taught me was that to that there are more people in the world that look like I do and, and talk like I do, and uh, I, that was a very valuable experience. Great. 
I enjoyed reading your book, Wilderness uh, Regained. In the last chapter, you pay homage to the Nature Conservancy. You've already talked a little bit about why you respect the Nature Conservancy. If you would, would you read us the last two paragraphs in the book? Sure. Uh, well, the Nature Conservancy, I think when they first came in the early 1970s, a lot of people resented the fact that they were buying up the islands, that they thought that um, the Eastern Shore of Virginia could become another Virginia Beach or another Ocean City. And I had nothing at all against Virginia Beach or Ocean City, but I think it's good to have the wilderness experience. And um, and that's what the Nature Conservancy provided. It was, you know, I've, I've realized that I can go to Virginia Beach and be on the same beach as or similar beaches, the ones we have here in Virginia, but it's not the same experience. Uh, definitely not. And ev even if you go to a beach like Assateague, uh, it's not the same. It's uh, I've written about you know, going out to Cedar when I'm there by myself. I remember coming home on leave in the Air Force, and I went out to Cedar and got caught in a northeaster and, and uh, took shelter in a, some sand dunes and when there were sand dunes there. So it's important to have an island system, I think, that's in its natural state. And uh, it's, it's good to have the developments, developed islands. It's good to have ones in the natural state. And I think what they did uh, gave us the opportunity to have that. So now we're going to hear the last two paragraphs of Wilderness Regained. Go right ahead. It is rewarding then to tag along when TNC's education staff takes a group of third graders out to explore a salt marsh or a tidal flat at low tide. Children take delight in learning about life, dragging a minnow seine along a beach to catch grass shrimp and killifish, finding clam side sign exposed at low water, and then using bare hands to discover what lies below. In learning about life, they are learning the importance of landscape, the need to protect and preserve the whole of it. It all matters, even the smallest creature, and they need to know they are living in a remarkable place and having a remarkable and unique experience, that this life does have currency, and indeed, it should be thoughtfully measured. It could all still step away. Thank you very much. Thank you. In another book of yours, A Culinary History of Delmarva, you write about your first hunting trip. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, rail hunting with my father in Cedar Island. And um, I think I had fished and hunted for, or I'd, I'd fished for a long time. As soon as I was old enough to hold a rod and reel, we were at fishing. And it didn't really uh, occur to me that I was taking a life when I was fishing. And I, I'm not sure why this was, but the first time I went hunting, there was suddenly that realization when I'm fishing, it's almost like the fish is part of the process. You know, my bait is over, the fish grabs the hook, I'm really in the, the fish. But when you're hunting, you're making a decision to pull a trigger and take a life. And for someone who's doing that for the first time, it's a pretty emotional matter. And for some people, um, I, don't, I don't think they could do it. But for me, I think growing up, you know, my grandparents killed hogs. 
my father was an accountant, but he did book work for my uncles, and they paid him in pork products. So we had sausage hanging from the back porch every winter, and my mom would go out and some, on a Sunday morning and trim off a few links, and we'd have hotcakes and sausage for breakfast. So I was brought up uh, knowing where my food comes from, and uh, I think rail hunting or hunting in, in general reinforces this, that you're not... Um, above nature, that you're a part of nature. And that's what happened, I think, when we were at uh, rail hunting. And I think my father told me rail hunting was because they're plentiful when the tide is high in the fall, if you have an offshore storm or something like that. They're plentiful and they're easy to hit. <laughs> Going mm-hmm. Quail hunting or something like that, I'd probably go once and be frustrated and never go again. But I think uh, that's probably why he took me rail hunting. And that, that was really kind of a bonding experience between us. I still love to go rail hunting. I don't go much anymore, but uh, and uh, love rail is a delicious bird. Mm. And uh, I've you know, often thought that they, uh, reading about uh, shorebird hunting on the eastern shore back in the, in the late 1800s and early 1900s when it was legal at that time. And I've always wondered what uh, you know, a curlew would taste like, you know, when, how they prepared them back then. And uh, I think rail hunting and eating a rail is, is the closest I'm ever going to get to knowing what a shorebird tastes like. Right. So it was just part of growing up on the uh, seaside. Also. In that book, you describe having a muskrat dinner. <laughs> yes. My wife and I had muskrat for, I think it was our 25th anniversary. Um, and we had done the usual things on our anniversary. We'd you know, go out to nice restaurants or you know, have a nice steak or something like that. But we'd been reading about uh, muskrats, mainly up in, on the eastern shore of Maryland. Dorchester County is a big thing. And of course, it was a major industry up there in the 30s and 40s in trapping muskrats uh, for the, the hides. They were, they were selling mainly, I think, to Russia. And they were, it was, along with crabbing and oystering, was a major industry up there. But, of, of course, they ate the muskrats, too. In fact, they would have uh, some of the restaurants up there would have muskrat specials, and the churches would have muskrat dinners. So we decided we were going to try muskrat. Just going duck hunting, I'd kill many a... Uh, Hooded merganser and, and bufflehead, and uh, in along in along with the the occasional black ducks that were really good, so we decided we were going to try uh, muskrat, and we did. We went to Susan's Seafood up in New Church and got a pair of large muskrats, and and uh, so I, I cooked them the same way I do uh, ducks, you know, marinate them overnight in some salt water solution with a bit a little bit of lemon, and uh, and so we had muskrats and turnip greens and sweet potatoes, and they were very good. Very much like a hooded mercanser, I think. Not like what a lot of people say, oh, it tastes just like chicken. <laughs> no, it definitely tastes like hooded mercanser, <laughs> more so than chicken. <laughs> this is sort of a random question, but in one of your books, and I can't remember which one, you speak of George Shearus III. Tell us a bit about why he was important in the history of the Eastern Shore. Well, George Shearus... Um, was a photographer. He was also, his father was on the Supreme Court, but he was in Congress, I think in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. But he, he was instrumental in forming some of the first game laws that we have, the Migratory Bird Act, 1918. And he, he was out of Congress at that time, but he was still very influential in getting that legislation passed. He lived in uh, part-time on Revels Island outside of Watch Prig for, I think, close to 40 years. And very much a conservationist. He 
was the first photographer to ever have a featured spread in National Geographic magazine. Right. And and I, the editor uh, almost got fired for doing that. You know, National Geographic at that time really was an academic publication. And people thought, you know, you're turning this into a picture book, and it's, it's just not our mission. But I think the, um, the checks started coming in for subscriptions, and the editor and the, the people who ran the organization realized that, hey, maybe there is a photography, a feature, a future in photography. Right. And, and so money he, talks. Right, exactly. And so he was the first one, uh, Shiraz was. Excellent photographer. He went out usually at night and using uh, flash materials. So that time was very rare to be able to take pictures at night. Mm -hmm. And later he had an exhibit in Paris of his work. Speaking of photography, if people want to visit the Barrier Island Center, there is a an exhibit of families at Wallops Island, which I understand you printed the photographs from negatives that were donated by NASA. I did, yeah. Um, it's a family. Um, the hotel on Wallops was owned by a group of people from from Pennsylvania. It was, it was sort of a membership organization, and the membership took care of maintaining all the, the common spaces, the clubhouse and ho hotel and that kind of thing. Someone called from NASA one day and said, hey, one of the family members, one of the, the former members of the, the club or the hotel, called one day and said, hey, we've got these negatives that their father took on Wallops Island back around 1900, 1905. Would you be interested in, in looking at them? So he got the negatives, and I, I had a darkroom at the time, so he loaned them to me, and, and I made prints. And they were really outstanding photographs. Whoever took those pictures really knew what they were doing. They really had a good eye. So I made enlargements and, and they still are in the, in the Barry Rollins Center here now. You know, it was almost like they dressed people up in period costume. I mean, they were so spontaneous. And this was back in 1900 or so and photography was a pretty stiff Mm. Um, you 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 posed people. People didn't act uh, spontaneously. Uh, they were posed and stiff, formal portraits. These photographs were not at all like that. People were having fun. They were playing in the beach. They had their toy bears, uh, steep bears, and uh, boats that they had built, and they were racing the boats in the shallow water, and they were just, just amazing photographs. Love to find some more just like that. I bet you would. Curtis Badger, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Several years ago, Hampton Roads Public Media, WHRO, did a series of short spots called Our Eastern Shore. On each of our podcasts, I will revisit one episode. Listen. A Grandfather's Letter to His Grandson. You're listening to Our Eastern Shore. The following is a portion of a letter written by William Andrew to his grandson Nate about what life was like growing up on the Eastern Shore. Cape Charles was the best town around in which to grow up. As a child, I played ball, hide-and-seek, kick the can, and Red Rover. We had a goodwill club and rode our bicycles to take food to the poor people who lived in our town. We had a pony named Dee Dee who was mean and one day threw me off his back, and I landed in the mud. We had a cow named Ruby and another named Pearl. My brother and I would milk the cows every morning and every evening when we were growing up. After all these years, I still think the eastern shore is the perfect place to grow up and raise children. 
Not many people now live where they can enjoy the outdoors like they do on the eastern shore. What I miss most is being out on the bay, looking at the birds and the beautiful sunset. I am so proud that you are an eastern shore man. Love, Grandpa. Our Eastern Shore is created by WHRO in partnership with the Barrier Islands Center. Funding has been provided by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. You have been listening to Sharing the Mic with David Phillips, produced by the Barrier Islands Center on Virginia's Eastern Shore. Sally Dickinson, Executive Director. Kristen Dennis, Office and Marketing Manager. Megan Ames, Director of Planning and Development. Tracy Jones, Director of Education. The Barrier Island Center is located at 7295 Young Street in Machipongo, Virginia, 23405. The website is www.barrierislandscenter.org. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please direct them to podcast at iCloud.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Until next time, stay safe and be well.